Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Sometimes people have faulty perspectives just off of their lack of experiences, their lack of understanding. Logic is only a 50% chance of being right. That's not a high enough probability for me to just lean on it. I don't feel heavy like a lot of people. I don't feel heavy because I'm not ignoring my heart. I'm making decisions off of it and I'm at peace with it because I'm doing my part by just listening, listening to my being collectively. We can't fix anyone, and I think that's the biggest issue as nonprofits are created, and they think they're going to fix people. No, we don't fix them. We're with them, and we love them. That love empowers them to change, to want more in life. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Lariah Gaston. You can find her on Instagram and elsewhere at Lunch on Me. All right, so this episode, man, I held back tears through the whole episode. I'm not entirely sure why it was as emotional for me as I felt going through it. But you'll hear in the interview, because I did, I did not expect it. Lariah was a girl uh, growing up in New York who was in her uncle's uh, grocery store. And she saw a guy that was hungry and was eating out of the dumpster. And she found out that she wasn't able to feed him food because of certain laws that existed that didn't allow them to feed the homeless. And she just um, decided that she was going to make a change. Um, And it started with feeding one or two people on Skid Row in Los Angeles. And it has now grown into 10,000 people per month that she's feeding. But she's not doing it in just this, you know, I'm going to 
help homeless people. Not that there's any basic way to do that, but she's not doing it in, you know, a way of raising money, et cetera. She's doing it to help their spirit. She's doing it through nutrition. She has organic food that she brings out to Skid Row or she has sponsors do it. She has yoga teachers do yoga with them. She um, remembers when their birthdays are because nobody celebrates it. And she educated me on so many things. I mean, I didn't understand the mental illness portion of this. And what she educated me on is a lot of them didn't start out that way. You know, if you've ever had a bad two or three days, you walk around talking to yourself, right? Um, imagine having 10 years of that. She also educated me on how a lot of this stems from the foster care system. And I didn't understand how homelessness came from foster care. So, and she also gave me some practical information. Like, what do you do when you're walking down a New York City block and you get asked for food 10 times in a row? How do you handle that? So we dug in and we had some fun too. We talked about um, lots of different things that she likes to do. I learned so much about her. This is truly one of the most proud interviews that I am. I really, um, I went there with her and I really feel like people listening are gonna facilitate a change that's gonna have a ripple effect. So I'm just gonna leave it there. Let's jump into this interview with Lariah. Lariah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning to everyone. You know what? I have to tell you, I had the pleasure of being with you in LA and listening to you talk. And you educated me on an area that I am so ignorant about that I was like, I just, I have to have you on the show. So really glad that you're taking the time. I know it's much earlier in Los Angeles and you just found a way to do this. So thank you again. Thank you. All right. So let's start at the beginning. Your background is everything. I mean, you're Italian, Puerto Rican, African-American. <laughs> you got it all, don't you? Well, I'm, well my, um, my stepfather is Black and Italian. I was raised by him. Yeah. Um, and my mother is uh, Creole-Irish um, and Greek. And my father's Puerto Rican and Cuban. Like my I mean, father. you're the United Nations. Literally, literally. I grew up literally having different sides of the family, all shapes, sizes, colors, foods. Yes, it's 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 probably the one of the best parts of existing. I love the fact that I just grew up in so much culture. Well, what do you feel mostly? I mean, like in your body, what do you feel mostly? I feel like on a family side, I feel more Italian just because I was raised with my stepdad's family. Mm-hmm. And I definitely have that like family, everything, closeness. You know, I'm the oldest of eight kids. So that like that definitely, I feel very influenced in that way. And I feel very Cuban and Puerto Rican. I feel, yeah, I'm, I, I'm drawn to my Caribbean side the most. I feel like- Have I'm you ever been to uh, any of the places? Cuba, Italy, anything? Yeah, yeah. I I was in Italy for two months. I've been to Puerto Rico. I haven't been to Cuba. I'm going to Cuba this year. But yeah, I've been. I've been to Greece for months. Um, so it's really nice to have gone to these places. The only place I haven't gone is Cuba, and I'm going to go this year. 
Amazing. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, it's funny. My house is in boxes now because I am spending next week, uh, four months in Europe. Two of those months will be in Italy and about three weeks are going to be in, uh, the Greek islands. So I'll get a chance to, oh, uh, be a part. Mykonos or Santorini. Mykonos. Yeah. Yeah. I love Mykonos. Amazing. Yeah, a- I love Italy too. I, um, I spent time in Florence and Perugia, Umbert today. I've been to Rome. Venice, like I, I love, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Italy. I love Italy. It's so fun. It, it's just amazing. So, so at 14 years old, you saw a man that was eating from a dumpster at your uncle's restaurant, which really set the tone for your mission in life. Can you sort of take us back to that moment of what it was like for you and, and maybe even talk about what the days that sort of followed was like? Well, first of all, that day, I think it was the first time I questioned why we throw away perfectly good food and, you know, these imaginary rules, like, why is this happening? Because at 14, I'm just like, this food is good. Why is it going in the trash? And in that moment, it was a divine moment because I'm throwing away perfectly good food that we all eat, make plates from, and a man's outside. And at that time, I wasn't thinking like, oh, you can't feed people. I just asked him, hey, would you like some? And in that moment, like it was such a magical experience for me, just what happened, like what followed, just giving him the food and our interaction within that time. Um, The next day I thought about this man because for one, when I gave him the food, I think the most divine, interesting part was I had put food on his grocery cart. I turned around to get him a drink, turned back around, he was gone. Like, but there was nowhere for him to go. Like this man literally disappeared and it was I mean, I just think it was a divine moment. It was just very interesting. And I remember thinking like, was I talking to myself? Like, where did this guy go? And the grocery cart was still there. The food was still there and he was gone. He literally vanished in thin air. And so the next day I did, I thought about him. I thought about him. I was just like, who was this guy? But after that moment, every single person who was homeless, I always offered food. I didn't even like wait for them to dig in a trash can. I'm like, hey, I have food. And I started setting this aside and to the point where my uncle ended up finding out and he had said, you can't do that. And in that moment, I didn't say anything. I didn't challenge him. I just waited till he would leave and I would still do it. Now, was your uncle the kind of guy that, you know, sort of like had the same ethos as you where you, you, you know, you truly wanted to help people or was he just more focused on the business and that just wasn't his thing? Yeah, there were two interesting things apart. Of, he was, he was a good guy, but he was focused on the business. And I feel like sometimes people get so consumed in rules that they take out the humanitarian part. Like, and I think I felt like that's what it was. It was like the human humanity was just like removed sometimes. And I just, I feel like you have to have a balance, right? It's kind of like there's rules and law and all these things. It's like, but then there's also a moment of just being human. And I think at that age, because I was so young, I was just thinking, this is silly. Like, this doesn't make sense. I wasn't in the space of like rules and consequence and all that. I was just like, people are hungry. They're in front of me and I'm going to give them food. So I didn't challenge him. And I think the most interesting part of the situation, now looking back, knowing more about my uncle at the time, uh, because my uh, grandmother had adopted him who raised me. The crazy part was my uncle had been homeless before. Isn't that ironic? Mm -hmm. And he was adopted into our family, but he'd been around since like I could remember. So I'd never really thought about it. He was just... But as I got older and I found out his life story, he had been adopted 
from in our family and he was homeless, but he'd gotten to a space where it was about rules. And I feel like sometimes we have to dismantle those things and help people. So I fed for three years. And then the interesting part was I had never seen that man again. And then the last day I was at the restaurant, he had walked by with a grocery cart and he just waved at me. God, it's like a movie. No, I mean, my life has been a movie. Literally. <laughs> I mean, it is really like a movie. That's no, it insane. Was really weird. And I was like 17 at the time. And I'm like, hey, that's the weird guy that never took my food. Is, uh, and this was in New York, right? No, this happened in Arizona. This was Arizona. Okay. But you were, you come from the Lower East Side of New York, right? In Midtown, Chelsea. You're, okay. So you're in Midtown. All right. But then you headed west to LA, which is where you are now, right? Yeah, I live. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I was okay, living so, in yeah, Spanish Harlem before I moved here. But yeah, I was well, that, that, that sounds like a Carlos Santana song. I mean, that's... Uh, <laughs> Cuban and Puerto Rican, what do you expect? <laughs> what do you expect? <laughs> I mean, so what was it that prompted the move for you from New York to LA? You know, it's weird. I just felt like I had always felt like I needed to be in LA. I didn't really understand why. And I had tried, like I'd come out here when I was like 18 from Mexico. I lived in Mexico for a year. I'd come out here at 18 and I was like, and the West Coast isn't really for me. Like I did not like LA, but I kept being drawn back. Now looking at it, I think that I was drawn here for Skid Row just to open my eyes about homelessness and the problems. But I didn't, I just knew I had to come here. And I've always, I've always um, moved past logic and I've done things instinctually. And I felt a pull. I felt like I need to be there. I didn't know why. And the only way to find out is to show up. And that's literally what I did. Like I'm pretty so in life. So I just, <laughs> this felt right and I'm going. Okay. So a couple of questions. There, there's a theme here that I'm noticing with you. And one is you're a rule breaker. And two is logic isn't always, quote, logical to you. Did I get that right? 100%. percent <laughs> Yeah, because I feel like there are things that surpass logic. I think logic is, a, you have a 50-50 chance of being correct. And I think it's based off of perspective. And sometimes people have faulty perspectives, just off of their lack of experiences, their lack of understanding. Logic is only a 50% chance of being right. That's not a high enough probability for me to just lean on it. <laughs> like I, I like calculated risks and I like things that make sense. And when they surpass logic, I'm at peace with those things. Every time I've gone past logic, I've been correct. It's when I stick with logic, I have a lower chance of getting it right. So if you don't stick with logic, what do you allow to guide you? Well, to me, it's my instinct, my intuition. Uh, it's my heart. It's my knowing. Like I feel like it comes from an infinite pooling. Like that type, like I feel like when you stay in that space, you tap into your infinite knowledge what rituals or practices do you use to tap into that side of you? Well, one, I, I built a really strong relationship with my heart. I think a lot of times we ignore it and we neglect our heart because we're so scared for it to get hurt that we don't spend time with our relationship with our heart and what our heart feels. And I feel like a lot of things, everything in our life, a lot of, a lot of us, we're assigned our life before we even realize that that's the life we want. We're, our, we're assigned our religion. We're, we're assigned all these beliefs that I feel like sometimes they contradict our heart. 
And we don't listen to our heart because it's been hurt once or twice. And all of a sudden we treat it like it's fragile and we ignore it and we neglect it. And I did the opposite. I wanted to have a relationship with my heart because I felt like when I did things that were outside of that, I felt like I was betraying myself. It's really interesting. There's um, there's an institute called the Heart Math Institute where they do research on how, I don't know enough about this to explain, but it, but it, it, it's, it's a way that you can connect your heart and your brain together because people do exactly what you just described. They focus more on their head and not their heart. And that leaves a, a huge significant part of who they are. So would you say that you listen more to your head, your heart, or your gut? Well, I I think I listen to all three of them together. You know, it's kind of like Tupac said a long time ago, fall in love, but take your head with you. <laughs> like follow your heart. Fall in the, never heard that. Fall in love, but take your head, take your heart with you or take your head with you? Your head with you. It's like follow your, or and he also said like, follow your heart, but take your head with you. I like that. And so, no, I definitely listen to both. I think my gut is more of just my alarm, right? Like that's your, like, that's the, like the alarm clock of like, hello, something's happening. And so like, to me, I stop and listen to that and find out where it's coming from and what it's connected to. But I listen to my heart, everything I do. Like, I feel like everything divinely, I think it, it, I think it moves on the heart of man and I make decisions off my heart. And it's the most liberating thing you can do because I feel like, first of all, it's our most authentic expression. Once you can start to articulate and express what's going on in there, you're so much more free. You're so much lighter. Like I don't feel heavy like a lot of people. I don't feel heavy because I'm not ignoring my heart. I'm making decisions off of it and I'm at peace with it because I'm doing my part by just listening, listening to my being collectively. And of course, I'm very logical. I'm very analytical. Um, I grew up in that type of environment to be that way. But I also seen the damages of when you just take your mind with you. And that's it. Like I've seen how that's hurt so many people and how many people are deprived of like a good human just from not you know, following their heart. Has there ever been a time where you didn't follow your heart, where you were mostly following your head and then you sort of went, you know what? This isn't working for me anymore. Like I, I like this is just not like I need to just trust my heart is telling me the truth. Or has this always been the way that you functioned? I think I've really fought for it. I think I've always been like that. Like I've always listened to my heart, and I think that society was always telling me the opposite, and I was always conflicted by it. So I was trying to do things in the way, you know, like I wanted to be obedient. I wanted to be, um, listen, but things would confuse me so much because I'm like, this doesn't feel right. Or I would always look at humans like I, I, I now I'm, I recognize that I've always thought like 10% of the world. I've never thought like 90%. So I think a lot of things before I was very introverted because a lot of things didn't make sense to me and I didn't want to challenge and go against people. So I kind of stayed quiet and tried to do things my own way, which like even my uncle, like I didn't argue with him about what I should and shouldn't do. I just stayed quiet and did what I wanted. And I think I was always, not until I started to really dive into what made sense to me, was I able to 
articulate the fact that I've always thought with my heart, I've always thought it was conflicting to just be logical, you know? And then you would hear, you know, you would hear people who don't lead with their heart where they're like, you know, like this is a weakness to be so loving and kind or people will take advantage of you. People, you know, all these different things I would hear now looking at it and making different decisions. I'm like, oh, like these people were hurt and guarded. We all get hurt. I've been hurt a million times, but I don't treat my heart like it's fragile. I treat it like it's resilient. I treat it like it's sustained through all of that pain and I'm still ticking. So clearly it's okay. I just think that I look at my heart differently. I look at it like it's powerful. I don't look at it like it's fragile. It's interesting. And now now it's your primary focus and you let that freak flag fly, right? Oh my God, heart work. The rest of my life will be to express love in every area of my life. That's all I want to do. I want to go through the world, talk about love, be love, express love. Like that's it. Nothing else. There's nothing else. <laughs> that is amazing. And I just got a, a giant lesson from you there. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to work on that in my life. All right. So you mentioned Skid Row. Yes. And I want to kind of dig into that a little bit. So when you got to LA, you saw that the homeless community was increasing by 23% per year. And for children, that number is even worse. Can you walk me through how foster care has a direct relationship to homelessness? Yes. Well, children went up last year. Um, They're doing the homeless count for this year right now. Um, Last year's count, children went up 64%. And currently there's, that we have accounted for, 58,000 homeless in LA. And the hard part with foster care is it doesn't work. The blueprint behind foster care hasn't worked because it's homeless children, right? Like we call it foster care, but it's really homeless children. And they don't have, they don't have any type of structure or support. Homeless kids are neglected to the point only 3% of them ever even go to college. And not to say college is the answer to all things, but 3% out of an entire demographic. In LA, there's 28,000 homeless kids, foster kids. And the reason I call them homeless kids is at least 50% will be homeless within six months of aging out of the system at 18. 50%, that's 14,000 kids. Out of 28,000, only 1,400 are awaiting adoption. So that which, which means that how much how many are waiting for adoption? Only fourteen hundred out of twenty eight thousand. Jesus. Okay. Go and, ahead. Keep going. And at, so eighteen fifty percent of them will be homeless within six months. So that is a huge problem. I mean, a ton of our homeless seniors were foster kids who never got adopted and never had families. You're thinking about people who would have to have created a support system by high school to have another chance because once they're aged out of the system, they're just on their own. So you have kids have making decisions as adults with no experience, no programs that are truly supporting that. And the numbers show that it's not supporting it, or you wouldn't have 50% of them being homeless within six months and only 3% ever going to college. 97% don't go to college if you've been in foster care. That's a huge amount. Yeah, it's almost all of them. Yeah, it is all of them. So it's it's like that those type of things happen and we always talk about 
you know, we, um, we only have, we only feel bad for the children, but we don't realize those kids in elementary and junior high, they're on their way to be homeless. We just don't see that, you know, we don't see that these are foster kids. We don't see that even with, uh, girls, they have, uh, 70% of girls are pregnant before 21. 70%. Why? Because there's no love around. The only love that they feel is even tangible is romantic situations. I mean, it's 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 rough. It's an awful system. Because nobody's educating them and saying, hey, look, you know, to get love, you don't have to have sex. You can do but it another way. That, but even that is kind of an idea opposed to an experience. So to tell someone that who's been displaced, disowned, not adopted, to tell a child that, that has nothing around that's loving to validate that they're worth. We know psychosocial needs. We know the fact that people need food, shelter, water, and then a sense of belonging. So if you start a child literally being displaced, the kids get transferred all the time into different places, constantly going through court. There's not one consistent person in their life that loves them. There's no family members. It's literally a kid with no nothing to cling on to, but we can't give them the idea of like, that's not how love is supposed to be. They don't have a direct example of love. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions that people have about why people are homeless? Everyone says two things, mental health and drug use. And they don't realize only 10% of homeless use drugs. I find that so hard to believe because, and I, I know I know you're accurate, but mm-hmm. every time I see, not every time, that's an exaggeration, but often when I see somebody, I live in Atlanta, and uh-huh. so when I walk around the streets yeah. and I see homeless people, they don't look like they're all there, and I don't know how to put it any other way. Well, yeah. um, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there's this part of me that's going, I feel like this person needs a hospital. Yes. So mental health, like it is traumatic to live in poverty. Again, this goes back to psychosocial needs. You cannot be like, and that's separate. Mental health, people don't realize a lot of the people become mentally ill from being homeless. Not from drugs. That's that's what the separation people don't realize. Mm. They They can't identify the two. 10% 10% only use drugs. The other that are dealing with mental health, they they weren't always like that. That came from living in poverty. That came from being in an unstable environment. Think about the stress people have when they can't get their bills paid or they have close calls or but imagine that's your that's your life, that's all you know. Oh, got it. Got it. I never even put two and two together, which is really ridiculous, but I never put two and two together. If you're living in that environment day after day after day, it is going to have an effect on you and you're going to look like you have significant mental problems, but it's really just the experiences that you've had over X number of days, months, or years that you've been living this way. Yeah. And then also the isolation. People don't talk to you when you're homeless. People don't acknowledge you. People ignore you. Even when people say hi, like I've seen it multiple times where a homeless man is saying hi just to try and communicate and someone will just ignore them or feel threatened or have these ideas of, oh, they're trying to be. And it's like, no, that that man's just trying to say hi because he doesn't get to talk to anyone. All right. So I'm going to throw another one out at you. Mm -hmm. I grew up in New York. I grew up in Queens. Uh And 
walking down the streets, you know, if I'm in the city or if I'm in certain areas um, where there's more homeless, I can get asked 15 times a day for money. Uh-huh. And I never know how to handle that. How do you recommend that people approach that? Because I always feel like a douchebag by not helping. But at the same time, like I, I'm just going to go one more block and I'm going to ask two more times. So like, how do you, like, what advice do you give for people in the, you know, in sort of the real world with, you know, this split of, I want to help them, but I can't literally do this all day long. Well, I do two things. I believe in micro gestures and an intention. So I carry granola bars in my purse and I always carry a hundred dollars and $5 bills. And that's just because I believe we have to contribute. It's our responsibility to help each other. And I don't think $5 is going to break the bank. And I think a granola bar is intentional and thoughtful. I always keep them. I feel like you can keep two or three. Um, And the reason I do that is because the worst thing in the world is when I look at people who are homeless in survival mode, people don't realize them being gracious enough to ask is 10 times better than being robbed. It's 10 times better than what could be happening. No one ever thinks about that. No one ever thinks about how would they be if they had nothing and were in survival mode. And all of us, if we were all doing our part, if we were all carrying $5 and granola bars, maybe half the people that are asking you wouldn't even ask you because they would have already had their their needs met. But the problem mm-hmm. is no one's doing that work. You know, a lot of people think that nonprofits are doing a great job at helping, but you, yeah, you really didn't love what you saw. Can you explain that and talk to that a bit? Well, okay, so... Let's remove what I've seen. Let's look at numbers. How, Skid Row, how is billions of dollars been funneled into a 50 block radius and every year it's worsened? Just on a business tip, if an investor is investing millions and billions of dollars every year and it's getting worse, when do we realize it's not working and where's that money going? Like, when do we question it? When do we say, how is it getting worse? When money is not the issue. Money is not been the issue to solve these problems. It's who has the money and how is it being distributed? What are these programs it's going towards? There's no accountability and there hasn't been. And so, yes, it's been horrible. On top of that, then people who work at the nonprofits don't have a heart for it. It's a job. We all know people who just get jobs to pay the bills and they hate them. But the thing is, when you're in this kind of work, it's kind of like being in customer service <laughs> like, and you hate it. How like awful does that turn? It's the same concept. It's like, you don't like this job. It's obvious, but this isn't the place to get a job that you don't like because you're dealing with people in trauma and pain. Like it's a very, you know, it's not the easiest occupation and it's not for everyone. And you see a lot of that. And I was very disappointed because before getting involved with nonprofits and becoming a volunteer before I created my own, I felt the same way. I was excited because I thought in my head, I held charities on a pedestal. I'm like, these are people making change. These are people that care. These are people who love it. I went in and experienced, I'm like, this is awful. This is an awful experience for the volunteer because you're like, what did you just do? There's no connection. And then all this money's being used where? You know, I, I, did, a non, I did an event with a nonprofit. I was uh, partnering 
we didn't have enough space in their back because the founder had a boat in the back of the homeless shelter that he had bought. (laughs) And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like we can't use the back patio because you have bought a boat and you put it in the nonprofit. Your driver's in the front with the Tesla. Hmm, this is interesting. But these are things I've experienced, you know. And it's it was heart shattering. It put me in a rage. That's when my heart went. I don't know anything about the nonprofit world, but I know how to love people, and I'll figure it out. I never planned to have a nonprofit. That was not in my plan. When people say that, I'm like, wow. That's ambitious. You're planning for impact and it's not connected to a dollar amount. That's very interesting. So in my head, because I'm like, I never planned for this. It was more like I was so hurt that people were being treated this way and that this environment was even unhealthy for me as a volunteer. That I was like, no, I'm going to create a space where everyone feels loved. Everyone feels valued. Everyone feels worthy to, to give and receive. Like this is a mess. And that's why I created Lunch On Me because it was so awful what I had seen. It shouldn't be that, that was before. that was 2006, right? You started that in 2006. Oh, 2016. 2016. Okay, so this is really brand new. Uh huh. All right, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about lunch on me. Can you des- can you describe what it does and tell me maybe some of the key lessons that you've learned since you started it? Well, lunch on me started as a food program. When I started, I wasn't really sure how it was going to go. I knew I loved people and I knew I, I knew how to cook. So I started with a food program where I wanted to focus on organic plant-based foods for the homeless because they didn't have access to fresh foods. And it started with organic food and then it's grown into Love Without Reason, which now focuses on holistic healing from Reiki, breath work, yoga. And then we also have like, we call them radical self-love initiatives that focus on celebrating um, birthdays, celebrating job opportunities. We've become like our nonprofit. I feel like our strongest point is we're the family aspect, we're the support aspect. So we focus on creating a family within our community and with the people that we work with so that they have a place to go. They have a place to call. They have people to celebrate when they do get out of their situation. They have, you know, birthdays. That's something that's huge on Skid Row. People, their birthdays aren't celebrated. So we created programs that focus on celebrating birthdays. We go bowling, we take them to dinner. Everything that we do is literally about the love, family, creating memories with the people. And that's what Love Without Reason was about. Like it was started in love. It wasn't about let's give them all jobs and solve the problem. It's like, let's mend their hearts and see what happens next. And what do you find happens when you do that? People save themselves. Tell me more about that. we're not, we can't fix anyone. And I think that's the biggest issue is nonprofits are created and they think they're going to fix people. No, we don't fix them. We're with them and we love them. That love empowers them to change, to want more in life. I think that we're helping reset them and make, making them more human. One time a man had told us, every time you guys come here, you bring us sobriety. Because Mm. when, and it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever heard. Um, because he had said, no one wants to drink. No one wants to do drugs when you guys are around because we want to be present for it. And I think mm. that, that was huge for us. That That's when I started to realize like, no, we are love and we're expressing that. And it means something to so many 
people look forward to us because that's the experiences we created. That's the space we made. We made a, a safe space for people to come and be loved. And even for volunteers, we made a safe space for people to have more purpose in their life outside of their resume and jobs that still make them feel empty because it's not enough. Everyone wants to have a sense of purpose. So it's for both. What approach have you seen now that you've been doing this and in this world for a while? What approach have you seen that has hands down the biggest impact on solving, and I know it's not solved yet, but you yeah. know, you get the idea of the question, um, yeah. the biggest impact on solving the homelessness problem. I think for me as an individual, as someone who started a program, who's been leading this initiative, the biggest impact I've had is fixing myself and my own things, my own struggles and battles so that I could be of service for others. That has helped the most is healing my own wounds and healing everything that would have prevented me from being loving, from being open, from being giving in the way that I am. I had to get out of my own way to be able to dedicate my life and existence to something and not knowing. Like I went into it not knowing what it would be. All I knew is I knew how to love people, but I didn't know what the outcome would be. And I think once I got to a place where I just trusted myself, I healed everything that would prevent me you know, I guess society, right? Society has taught us to be a certain way. So I think once I started to heal that and free thinking and saying, I've always wanted to help the homeless. I've always wanted to be loving. Why not? That changed everything. And I started setting the tone for my dynamics. The most powerful thing I've been able to do is say, hey, I want to be loving to you. Will you be loving to me in return? Wow. Your mom is your hero, yeah? Yes. Oh my God. She was the dopest woman in the world. Yes. And she's passed? Yes, she passed away. Well, she is in heaven looking down on you and very, very proud. I mean, just uh, incredible. So <clears throat> this show is basically for people that um, are entrepreneurs and they work really, really hard and they love what they do, but really all they do is work and they don't spend a lot of time on doing things that are going to help with fulfillment in their life. So I split the show up into, into uh, two parts. The first part is on really talking about what they do and sort of uh, what we just did with you, talking about your work and what you do. And the second part of the show is what you do for fulfillment. So I'm going to switch gears and we're going to talk a little bit about um, how you add more fulfillment in your life. And I know we just talked some about that, but I want to, I want to dig in a little bit deeper. So okay. some of these questions may be like, wow, that's coming out of left field. So just stay with me. Okay. What is a new behavior or belief in the last fill in the blank number of years or months that has significantly improved the quality of your life? For me, I would say trusting more. And when I say trust, it's faith. It's trusting in my higher thoughts, my higher ideas, trusting in just nature, the universe and decisions. I think that trust, um, because I feel like 90% of our battles are within our own minds. I don't think they ever even reach the surface and out external world. And I started to trust myself more. And I started to live off that trust. And I started to exist within that trust. So I no longer have to intentionally say, trust myself. Now I'm just living it. And that's changed everything. 
Yeah, that's interesting. You know, you and I had the privilege of uh, doing a dinner with uh, Jay Shetty. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm sure that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh-huh. And, you know, yeah, it was great. One of the things that he talked about that night was what you just said, which is, you know, if you had started trusting yourself, you know, let's say in, I don't know, 10 years ago in high school or whatever, that voice is going to be louder because you've had yeah. a chance. But if you just start trusting yourself today, it's going to be really, really quiet. So it sounds like your voice yeah. is getting louder because you're doing it more. Yeah. 100%. Now, yeah. Now it's my way of life. It's what you practice becomes a habit and then practice habits become innate. Now I'm in a space where my trust is innate. Mm, I love that. I'm going to totally steal that from you. That was really good. Yeah. Are there, <laughs> are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed substantially where you've shifted your position or you completely changed your mind about? Um, yes. I think that growing up, I think that you know, being a teenager, younger, financially going up and down, right? Like not having consistency, trying to build businesses, things like that. So I've, you know, you've gone without you know, when you're fighting for your dreams, I think what changed a lot is because I had gone without and I had to be in a space of, I'd say scarcity where you have to like, you know, really budget and do these things. I think that when I, when I took on lunch on me and decided I would feed people, the same person who went through times where she couldn't feed herself. And then I said, my first event, I would feed 500 people. And in that moment, if you think about 500 people feeding, if I couldn't feed myself, 500 people in one day is feeding myself for over a year. And I think I went from scarcity to the mindset of abundance before I even had abundance. Mm. So I think that the biggest thing that changed for me is, you know, you become products of your experiences and environment. So I felt like I had to be, you know more mindful with my budgets and how I'm spending money. But then when I led from my heart, where I'm like, we're going to feed 500 people this day. It came from just my heart. Like my heart made that decision. And that day, that's what we accomplished. We fed 500 people and I went from 500 to 10,000 in a year and a half. I you know, Tony, Tony Robbins says that power moves to you when it's coming from your heart. And that's what it sounds like exactly happened to you. A hundred percent. And I feel like that's what changed uh, substantially is I didn't have to have abundance. Like I didn't have to have a lot of money to think and, and move and express from infinite abundance. It was almost like knowing that things would be supplied if I would put it out there, if I would believe it. Like you have to believe it. I didn't question it at all because it was coming from my heart. I'm like, we're going to feed 500 people because in my head, I'm like, this is what needs to be fed. This is what needs to happen. And again, I was the girl who didn't have the money to do that. And I looked up and now I'm feeding 10,000 a month. And it happened literally in a year and a half. So I think that for me, outside of not having, my mindset went to infinite, infinite abundance. What is the one goal that you thought when you achieved it, everything in your life was going to get better? If I could just achieve this, everything's going to be great. And then you achieved it and you were like, ah, that didn't really give me what I thought it was going to give me. So I'm an artist. Um, I used to act, model, basically like that was my life that was assigned to me. 
was entertainment, acting, did all that, did a lot of great things. Um, I think that for me, I think there was a moment that I thought to myself, did you ever even want to be a model or did people put you in there because that's what they saw you as? And I think that that was my moment. A lot of people go through it. Mine was extreme because it was in the industry. Other people could be, you know, engineers, doctors. And it's like, yeah, people assign you a life. And I think that that was one of the first moments where I'm like, is this what I really want to do? Is this, because this is the life that was assigned to me. And I think that that is what changes. I started thinking about, yeah, nothing's for nothing. I'm grateful for those moments because that's also open doors for lunch on me and the people that I know and things like that. But I just want to talk about love. I just want to be loved. And I think that's what I realized is I was going in the direction of a life that was assigned to me opposed to what I wanted in my heart. And I didn't necessarily know what I wanted, but I needed to know. Just because I don't know what I wanted doesn't mean I have to conform to what's been assigned to me. Got it. Makes perfect sense. And I, by the way, I can see when I look at you, you're absolutely stunningly beautiful. I could see how everybody would want you to be a model and an actor and all of those things. But really what I see is the light that's inside of you that lights up a room in a way that I've never seen before. I mean, you know, the mastermind I'm in where I met you, we have some pretty heavy hitters that come in there. And um, we have a, a bunch of divas that are in that room, those entrepreneurs. And you just crushed that room. I mean, we had, I, I think if I'm correct, some of some of the entrepreneurs in that room actually met you on Skid Row um, the following day. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, four of the women came out and loved I mean, it's incredible. Loved it. Like we had music going, they were dancing with people. <laughs> <laughs> if you could spend one month anywhere in the world that you haven't mm-hmm. been, that you think you want to go, where would it be and why? I really want to go to India. Um, I have mm. not been to India. I want to go because there that's one of the poorest places. Poverty there is a different level and I want to help. So I do. I want to go to India. Um, there's a lot of children there. It's different here because we hide the amount of children. There's children on the streets there and I would spend a month there. And I, if I if I could do that tomorrow, I would go there and I would feed and I would do yoga and just bring love to India because I think that it's so needed there. And that's one place that's been heavy on my heart is India. Yeah. You'll be there before you know it. Um, if you can go to only one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? Oh my God. I like food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what restaurant? Oh my God. I know there's a vegan restaurant in Mendocino um, up North. And in wine country, it's called Ravens. It's in the Stanford Hotel. I would go there. They get a lot of their produce, everything on the property. And I had went there. I'd stayed there for a couple of days. And it's really cool. There were like llamas out in the, on the property. There's canoeing. But I just remember being in that restaurant. I'm like, I need a farm like this. And I go to Ravens. <laughs> I just, like, I need a farm like this. I love that. What's the one thing that's rocking your world now that has nothing to do with your nonprofit or homelessness or any of the work that you do? That you is- know what? My family, my siblings, I'm the oldest of eight kids. And I feel like outside of my work, the one thing I'm truly obsessed with is my family. I love it. I love my siblings. I love 
every single one of them. I'm going to name all of them. Travion, Rico, Shahid, Deja, Raylan, Khalif, and Kaden. I love them all so much. Um, and they just make life worth living. Like I tell them, like, I love the world, but they have such a special place in my heart. And I speak to my siblings every single day. And so I feel like outside of my work, they're the only place I'll stop anything I'm doing just to to be with them. Where are they? Are they all spread over um, different spread states? Out. Yeah. <laughs> yes, from the East Coast. I mean, the closest west is Texas. Mm. Where, like, from Texas on. And you talk to all of them every day? Every day. If it's, it's a text message, it's a call, even if it's three minutes to hear that they're breathing, they're okay and I love them. If I'm in a meeting and they call, their alarm is on. I will never turn it off. They always, my world stops for them. Mm. It's beautiful. And that's, I, if you're going to, if you're going to give love to the world, you got to make a difference in the few people that you have in your life. I had to say, I love the world, but I, you hold such a special place. You have to know it. And it's a hard one to beat when you're doing the work that you're doing. If it's all love, you know? Yeah, I do. I had, I had to learn that balance. I didn't for the first, when I was building it for the first two years, it was difficult. And I felt like I was neglecting them and I never wanted to be successful and neglect my family. So I had to reset and steepen my love in that way. Well, let's talk a little bit in that area. Are there any particular routines, tools, or anything that you use to rejuvenate or decompress yourself? You've got a crazy busy schedule doing things you love and doing things that are making a difference. But what have you built into your schedule to help you recharge the batteries? Oh my God. So I have things I do every week. I'm actually doing it with my brother today. I have one brother that lives here. And so for me, arcade games, because I have to do things. I As complex as the world is, I go back to when the world did not have internet. And I always say like there, there was easy entertainment. And for me and my siblings, like we go to the arcade. I go to the arcade every single week to play Pac-Man, to play Tetris, to play Galaga. To play all the old games because I just feel like that's just a, a simple moment, like to be present in that way. Um, so we go to the arcade. We're gonna go today, um, me and my brother, and um, I go to Latin cardio. I used to dance, so like Latin I- cardio. That sounds like so much fun. <laughs> yes. Oh my god, mira papi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so- <laughs> So I literally go to Latin cardio where I can just shut out the world and just dance till I can't dance anymore. And I go to Korean spas. Like I, Korean I spas. Tell me about that because there was one in Queens and I never went to it and everybody said, you're an idiot. You should have went. It's amazing. Yeah, Korean spas are really cool because they're most of them are 24 hours and they have like hot baths, ice baths, saunas. The one I go to has like five different types of saunas from like Himalayan salt to jade, like really cool. I go there a lot to sleep. You can do like, it's, it's a 24 hour pass. So you can literally go there and they have like community areas where you can sleep and it's where I just shut off. You put your phone in your locker and for 24 hours, I, sit and I meditate and I pray and I sit in the sauna and I download, you know, ideas and what's next. And I listen, like, you know, I, I always, I always say that like praying, praying is, is venting to God. Meditating is hearing the answers. Mm -hmm. And so like, I always, I always do that. Like I always sit and get centered to try and like connect with my higher thoughts and ideas. And I feel like that's a good place to do it. There's so much silence there. So you can actually go there and they're cool with letting you sleep. 
yeah, there's community areas to sleep. The one I go to, there's literally mats where like 60 people will be out. Everyone's the same. We're all in robes. Like <laughs> you're, you're knocking out and that's it. Like everyone sleeps and it's so calm and peaceful and it's 24 hours. What part of LA do you live in? Koreatown. Oh, you're in, oh, well, okay. That makes sense. You're right there. Really yeah, cool. It's intentional. I love Koreatown and it's, I'm two miles from Skid Row. Okay. So, um, I'm moving to LA when I come back from Europe, um, and I'm moving wow. to, uh, the South Bay area. Um, yeah. so I am gonna, if, if you'll let me, I'm going to play Pac-Man with you and your brother, and I'm going to go to Koreatown with you. You'll love it. And my brother is really cool too. He, um, works at SpaceX. So he builds rockets. You and- have, you have a rocket scientist for a brother? Yeah, my brother's. Yeah, he works at SpaceX. He's actually doing the the project that's being launched to Mars. Oh my god, I could do a whole show on that. You know what I'd love to do? You think he would be uh, willing to come on the show to talk about that, or is it all top secret? Um, we could ask him. I know I can definitely get you a. Um, I know I can get you a um a tour of SpaceX if you want to mm, go there. I am so taking you up on that. This is amazing. All right, we're going to wrap up with our rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you would like. It's basically a first thing that comes to your mind round. Okay. What would your friend say is one of your superpowers? I outwork everyone around. Mm. What's What's one thing you're afraid of right now? All of my nightmares will come true. I'm not afraid of anything. What keeps you up at night? Knowing that the problem isn't solved. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? Do you feel tired even though you don't sleep? (laughs) What's the one thing that you want to get better at? My delivery and how I articulate when people are adding to mediocrity and not going above and beyond. What book have you reread the most? Uh, Khalid Gibran's The Prophet. What's your guilty pleasure? Tons of coffee. Like What's, tons, gallons. Gallons of coffee. What, what, that, that goes with the lack of sleep, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's one thing that you own and you probably should throw out, but you're never going to throw it away? I have this rabbit that I can actually see where I'm at that I've had since I was like five. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, so homelessness is off the table, and nothing that you speak about, and it could be on any topic that you like or have a passion for other than homelessness, what would it be? How science and religion are related. Mm. All right, last question. We're going to change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? Are you happy? Yeah, I'm really happy. I'm in a really, really happy place in my life right now. If you asked me that a year ago, I would have said I was miserable. But right now, I am doing exactly what I want to be doing. Perfect. That makes me happy. Do you, <laughs> do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people that are listening? 100%. The first thing I'm going to say is pledge monthly to Lunch on Me. It starts $10 a month. We're a nonprofit that is not government funded and never received a grant. I'm sure that every single person has seen or been affected by homelessness and support us, support what we're doing, support our initiative and just check out what we're doing because it really is about micro gestures and love without reason. 
Lariah, you have um, just opened my eyes, opened my heart, opened every part of me, truly. Uh, that's the reason why I just wanted to have you on the show. And I wanted to make sure that I made the time before I left uh, for four months in Europe uh, to get you on. That's how much it moved me. So thank you for the work that you're doing and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for having us. And I will see you when you come to LA. Pac-Man is on. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.